On the 10th of January this year, a video appeared on YouTube and Facebook. It was a journalist in Veracruz, Mexico, and he was sitting in front of the camera. He had short black hair, black rimmed glasses, and a thick silver chain hanging loosely around his neck under a white shirt. As he prepares to speak, he removes his glasses and looks directly into the camera and begins to talk. Bueno, por los hechos que se acaban de suscitar ahora en Sayula de Alemán nuevamente, dejan muy en claro, amor auditorio, la... The topic of this 5 minute 12 second video is the Veracruz state government's alleged failure to respond to organized crime and a string of recent murders, a dangerous topic to cover in today's Mexico. His name is Jose Luis Gamboa Arenas, a local journalist and founder and editor of Inforegio and La Notasia, both news websites. He often reported on security issues, so this new video was very much in his wheelhouse. But this was the last post Gamboa would ever upload. Later that day, he was attacked and killed after being stabbed seven times. Three days later, his family formally identified his body. The authorities claimed it to be an attempted robbery and unrelated to his work an all-too-familiar claim in a country considered to be the most dangerous place in the world outside of an active war zone to be a journalist. Jose Luis Gamboa Arenas was the first of nine journalists killed in Mexico since the start of the year. We've already surpassed last year's total and we're only in May. This is Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. In Veracruz, the Fiscalía General del Estado confirmed the assassination of another journalist. Se trata de José Luis Gamboa, usted lo está viendo en pantalla. As journalist, if, if you suffer this kind of surveillance, you cannot promise to, the, to your source that you can protect them because the government knows everything about what are you doing. ¿Dónde está Duarte? ¿Dónde está el dinero de Duarte? ¿Y cómo fue que logró establecer una red then the subsequent administration of Javier Duarte turned the state into a real criminal operation and strengthened deals with the Zetas. So today, the influence of the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación is strong. On this first day of February, journalists in Mexico are mourning the murder of yet another colleague, the fourth to be killed since the start of this year. And by minimalizing happening, by saying, well, you know, he was killed because of something personal, or he was killed because he was colluding himself with the criminal gangs, then you basically send a signal to the public that you are unwilling to properly investigate. This is Killing the Power of the Pen, Violence Against Journalists in Mexico, part one. It's a message of terror to stop asking questions. Mexico. 
According to the Global Organised Crime Index, levels of criminality in the country are so high that it sits fourth out of 193 countries. Drug trafficking, human trafficking, arms trafficking, oil theft, illegal logging and so on. There are significant levels of all of these crimes. And then there are the heavily armed and incredibly violent cartels. Sinaloa, Jalisco New Generation Cartel, the Gulf Cartel, Los Setas and their splinter groups. And of course there are others. And to combat these cartels you have highly militarized security services. And then of course there is the corruption, which is rampant and high levels of impunity. Which makes reporting on certain topics like crime, corruption, security and politics incredibly dangerous. Since the year 2000, according to the Human Rights Organization, Article 19, over 150 journalists have been killed. But with impunity levels over 90%, very few of these murders receive justice. Now I've met loads of journalists during my career, and like all professions, there are some bad eggs, but the overwhelming majority are good, idealistic people who care passionately about the work they do and the communities they report on. And so when I look from afar at what has happened in Mexico over the past two decades, I find it truly saddening. Mexico is one of the most dangerous places to be a journalist in the world. And that's what we're going to talk about over these next two episodes. And I think it's important to start with those who work this beat, the Mexican journalists themselves. Yes, for me it has been like really difficult. I cover human rights violations. So... For example, my topics are uh, the 43 students who were uh, disappeared in 2014, or the mass graves. I cover the disappearance of people. That is my specific topic that I has been covering like more than 20 years in Mexico. This is Marcela Tarati, an investigative journalist in Mexico and the co-founder of Quinto Elemento Lab, an investigative journalism organization who work with and mentor other Mexican journalists through the progress of their investigations. But uh, every time it's like really, really more dangerous. It's dangerous for going, for example, to the mass rapes uh, areas. We have a lot in Mexico, no? And we always, journalists, go with the relatives of the people who who are missing uh, because they are looking for them, no? In mass graves or in jails or in the streets or in some neighbors or, I don't know, many different places. So we journalists are with the people looking for them, but those are controlled zones, controlled neighborhoods or municipalities, and it's really dangerous. No? So many times we have to hurry and just leave and go outside some places because we receive some kind of threat, but also I don't know, covering the other topic that I cover, it covers massacres of migrants. I have been covering for 10 years some massacres of more than 200 people. And the problem is not only 
that the places are really, really dangerous to go and visit and report. Also, because you have the government don't want that you expose what you see, because many times you expose the impunity and what the government wrongdoing and the corruption and many, many things that the government doesn't want that you publish. So that is like really, also really difficult. Many times you receive threats, many times you receive false information that also the government do that. It's difficult to, in Mexico to cover certain topics. And also the killing of other journalists is another of the topics that I cover. Uh, they're really, really complicated. And yes, uh, it's, it's difficult, it's complicated. And also they try that you don't cover or expose too much information or to have it. So yes, it's difficult to be journalist in Mexico in the recent years. As a national journalist, Marcella's standing means that it offers some additional protections, but certainly not enough. We've seen other prominent journalists like Javier Valdez or this year Laudes Maldonado be murdered. And what comes with that prominence is also a different sort of attack, and that comes in the form of sophisticated cyber weapons. Marcella spoke of the mass graves that she has reported on, and one of those was in a place called San Fernando in northern Mexico, where in 2011 the bodies of almost 200 people were discovered in unmarked mass graves on the edge of the town. These people, some Central American migrants, had been dragged off buses and beaten to death. It was reported the ultra-violent Los Zetas group were behind the killings, but no one has ever been convicted. This horrible case led to the most sophisticated surveillance operations against specific journalists who themselves were investigating these disappearances. And I'm talking about what would come to be known as the Pegasus Project. This is my phone. I take it everywhere, apparently. But now imagine your biggest enemy sits in this phone. The Pegasus Project kick-started a conversation and sparked a realization that surveillance can reach parts of their lives that they thought were never imaginable. The Israeli government is uh, allowing the selling of these technologies without uh, limitation, without uh, consideration of human rights issues. This is peeling back a curtain that we have never seen done with this level of granularity. The Pegasus Project really personalised our understanding of surveillance because we were able to put you know, faces to the victims of this stuff. Civil society activists, lawyers, journalists, politicians, people trying to do good things are being scuppered and have a lot to fear as a result of these technologies. Last year, Forbidden Stories, an investigative journalism non-profit, released a report into leaks from a company known as the NSO Group, a cyber intelligence company. 
they developed an incredibly powerful spyware known as Pegasus. This software is extraordinary in the sense of how effective it is. It can infect your phone without you ever realizing. You don't have to click on a link or anything like that. Once on your phone, whether using iOS or Android, Pegasus could see everything. Any messages you sent or received, even if the app markets itself as end-to-end encrypted, it made no difference. It could look at your photos and videos, record calls, turn on your microphone or camera to record conversations. It could track where you are and where you've been. There's even a record of your digital fingerprint. Now in Mexico, a number of journalists were on a target list from NSO Group, including Marcela Tarati. Uh, it was really shocking and I was, I felt like really disappointed and sad and angry and a lot of feelings, no? Because Pegasus is a malware really intrusive and they can have access to all your emails, your pictures, your location, your contacts, your phone calls everything. So it's like if somebody come to your home and, I don't know, and open your closet and read your diaries and know everything about you. But that was not the only surveillance that I suffered. Last year also, I was informed that the general prosecutor office uh, that they follow me and I am in a judicial case I was investigated and they collect information about the my phone calls and the places where I go because I was covering these massacres of occur in 2011 and they wanted to know because I have access to the judicial files. They wanted to know who gave me the information. And they did this surveillance to me, to lawyer, and to forensic anthropologist. And they tried to charge us in organized crime and kidnap. So the same time, <laughs> I suffered these two kind of surveillance and also I was informed last year for those for Pegasus and for this other intimidation and this other surveillance by the government. So uh, for me, I don't know, I was devastated and I, I am still uh, worried about what do they have about me and what how they will use the information, but principally, if they did something to one of my sources, if they maybe threat somebody who spoke with me, I don't know. I I I don't know what they did with this information that they collect about me. But as journalists, if if you suffer this kind of surveillance. You cannot promise to the to your source that you can protect them because 
the government know everything about what are you doing, where you are, and and who are you speaking with. And it's like really frustrating and and terrible. You see, for an investigative journalist like Marcella, being able to protect your sources is absolutely vital, not only for your own work, but also for the protection and safety of that source. If people don't feel safe to speak, they won't. Yes, you cannot protect your sources. And in a place in like Mexico, uh, where uh, you, you have people who give you information, about things that you cannot publish, that you have to investigate. Or many times we we don't sign the articles that we wrote because this is danger, no? Because we have to protect ourselves. And this is a, a strategy. Don't use your name or try to collaborate with another big organizations or in network with other journalists from another countries to present and to publish information because in Mexico you can't do it. So you have all this environment of journalists kill. We are the country that is in the top of killing of journalists for three years. We have been the the deadliest country in, in the world many years for being journalist. Also, we are in the top uh, 10 of impunity because the killings or disappearance of journalists are not investigated by the government. And you have this Pegasus malware, another kind of spywares that that they implant in, in journalists. So we we are not in like, this is not good for democracy, no? This is must not happen in a country that is called democracy. That is not, yes, and this year we have in January and February, a journalist kill, no? And it's, uh, it's, it's terrible. And the message for the whole community of journalists is uh, of, it's a message of terror to stop doing and stop asking questions. And it's, yes, it's the message is for the whole community. And each time that one journalist is killed, the whole community suffers and we live again the trauma of losing a friend, a colleague, and it's a message for the uh, for all the co- the journalists of stoing, stop doing what we are doing. Yeah, so yes, yeah, it's really difficult in Mexico. The Mexican state has said very little about the use of Pegasus against journalists, but regardless of that, Leopoldo Maldonado, the regional director of the Office for Mexico and Central America of Article 19, says that the Mexican constitution does not allow this. To this must be added that, for example, 
actors not authorized or institutions not authorized by the Constitution and by the laws to carry out communication interception, such as the military forces, are doing so and acquiring this type of tools, which is openly illegal. Therefore, it is presumed that there is still a lack of transparency in the acquisition of these sophisticated programs, and we do not doubt that there is also lack of transparency in their use and that there is no judicial order for a legitimate interception of communication. The danger of repetition of this type of case is still latent because the conditions that gave rise to the misuse of Pegasus are still in place. Alongside Marcella, I was able to speak to Miguel Angel Leon Carmona, a journalist based in Veracruz who investigates security issues like disappearances and extrajudicial killings. And I wanted to ask him whether he ever regretted his choice to become a journalist. Yes, there have been times. I don't know if it is the same in all jobs, but well, in this one, it does happen. There are times that the same working condition with at the beginning happened to me. This makes you think if you made the best decision and you even get to think if the impetus you have as a person or the aptitudes and potential you might have could be better rewarded, better reciprocated in another area. Of course, at the moment you get to think about how you would have done if you were working as a lawyer, for example or leading a group as a teacher. This is mainly because of the economic aspect. Yes, it is. It's quite complex, especially at the beginning of your professional career. I say this because of what happens in Veracruz. And later on, there are more questions already at the stage where you are acquiring a little experience. Perhaps I call it existential problems because suddenly you also start to think if the effort that this profession demands is not in vain because you are more aware of this, of the vicious circle sometimes in which you work, of a circle sometimes where corruption and violence are present, and well, that is where you ask yourself again if this is worth it. Another thing to consider are the labor rights for journalists. Many are poorly paid and have no social security in place, and so have to work for multiple media outlets to make a living wage. If that journalist is the main or sole breadwinner in the house, what happens to the family that is left behind? Here's Griselda Triana, the wife of investigative journalist Javier Valdez, who was murdered in 2017. She now campaigns for the rights of family members of murdered and disappeared journalists. Las condiciones de ellos, uh, so their conditions were very difficult and obviously the families were left completely helpless not only without the income they provided, but also without anything, without anything. That is, without benefits such as social security, they are left without housing because they have no right to Infonavit or Foviste. So there is a case of a colleague whose disappeared husband had a mortgage. And well, now for a long time, she has been harassed by this banking institution to pay the house which is the only patrimony of her son. And so the stories are so difficult in the economic aspect for the families that is not only living with complex mourning, 
in the case of those of us who have lived through the murder of our journalist, or unfinished mourning, as in the case of forced disappearances, also of journalists. And you add it up, no? They are one tragedy after another. And I believe that the economic aspect is the most difficult one because it is what we families have to deal with every day, such as ensuring food for our children, that they have money to have breakfast at school, to give them money for the bus, to take them to school. Remember that figure from the start of this episode? Since the year 2000, according to human rights organization Article 19, over 150 journalists have been killed, with impunity levels over 90%. But these staggering numbers don't fully tell the story of how difficult and dangerous it is to be a journalist in Mexico. They have to deal with poor working conditions, organized crime, corruption, and a hostile political climate. And there is one region above all which is reported to be the worst, and that's what we're going to talk about next. Over the years, the war on drugs in Mexico has produced grisly images that have been plastered across television screens and newspapers around the world, often located in US border cities like Ciudad Juarez or Tijuana, where cartels vie for control of trafficking routes. Reporting on organized crime and corruption is dangerous in any of these locations, but the region with the worst reputation for violence against journalists isn't on the US-Mexico border. It's in the state where Jose Luis Gamboa Arenas worked, in the southeast, the long coastal state of Veracruz. More than a dozen people were killed today in two separate instances in the state of Veracruz. The first was when gunmen attacked three buses, and the second was in a city in the northern part of the state where up to four people were killed. 35 bodies dumped underneath a bridge in eastern Mexico. Veracruz was a quiet port city. Now dead men and women are dumped near shopping centers. Veracruz state authorities are investigating the fresh murders of at least four more media workers in that Gulf Coast state. Their chopped up bodies were found Thursday in garbage bags near Veracruz City. At least 14 people have been killed in the Mexican state of Veracruz after a group of gunmen opened fire at a private party. Authorities say that one child, five women and seven men are among the dead. Veracruz has long been a battleground for competing criminal organizations, with the large port city of Veracruz being the prize. Cartels like Los Zetas, birthed out of a group of Mexican special forces deserters in the early 2000s, and infamous for the level of violence they have inflicted on rivals and innocents alike. They established a significant presence here. More recently, the paramilitary organized crime hybrid, the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, moved into the region. Here's Syria Gastalem Felix, Resilience Director at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Yes, Veracruz is a, it's an interesting case because, you know, there are the states like my own home state of Sinaloa where there's always been organized crime and it's just this place that kind of has been in the map. 
forever. But new places, new territories in Mexico have come up as really hot spots for, for crime and violence in the last years. And, and this is, you know, Veracruz is one of these states. So what happened in, in this, the problem in Veracruz started to deteriorate, I would say, two decades ago when a very corrupt government allowed the Zetas to influence local politics. Then the subsequent administration of Javier Duarte turned the state into a real criminal operation and strengthened deals with the Zetas. So today, the influence of the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación is strong. And every time there's an election in the state, and you can see the amount of violence. This gives you an indication of how integrated criminal groups are into these local power dynamics. And just to prove a point, Veracruz is also the most dangerous place to be a politician. There were elections last year and just days before the elections took place, risk analysis group Etelect reported that there had been 117 acts of violence and 16 politicians murdered. Now, to get an understanding of Veracruz, we have to go back to just over a decade ago when a man called Javier Duarte began his term as governor of Veracruz. During this man's term in office, which lasted around six years before ending in disgrace in 2016, violence against journalists exploded, particularly against those who criticised Duarte's administration. Here's Leopoldo Maldonado from Article 19. 17 journalists murdered during his administration. Well, that shows a serious negligence at least. And where the investigations didn't get anywhere because there was no interest for the investigation to get anywhere. Rather, they wanted to keep the press intimidated in a context of dispute between drug cartels, in a context of an exponential increase of disappearances, torture, extrajudicial executions in the territory of Veracruz, which became an enormous clandestine grave. The first journalists to be targeted were those investigating the link between politicians and organized crime. Police stepped up surveillance and intimidation on those who protested against any killings. The violence from the state was only equaled by that meted out by organized crime who would try to use the media to publicise messages they would leave at crime scenes. A photographer in Veracruz, Gabriel Cordova, told a journalist that he had been threatened by organised criminals to take pictures they wanted publicising. Failure to report that message correctly could be dangerous. Gabriel was killed in 2012. The relationship between journalism and organised crime is a very complex issue. On the one hand, we see that there are criminal groups that want to impose silence or at least impose their narrative through pressure for publicity or propaganda of their criminal acts against others, against antagonistic groups or against the authorities themselves. We see that there is still a confluence of circumstances in the zones of criminal dominance. On the other hand, military intervention in various parts of the country may increase violence in general and in particular, violence against the press. On the other hand, wars within the cartels, where leadership is disputed, are also a trigger for this violence. On the other hand, wars between cartels also generate greater vulnerability conditions for the press. So, on the one hand, they seek to silence it. 
on the other hand, they seek to co-opt it so that it can promote and publicize their criminal acts. And that evidently places the press between two fires. Because on one hand, we have authorities deeply resistant to criticism and public scrutiny, who react with violence and seek censorship of the individual journalists or the media that publishes the articles that are uncomfortable for them. And on the other hand, we have criminal violence. Y por otro lado, tenemos la violencia criminal. Just as Duarte's reign was crashing down, Reporters Without Borders released a report called Veracruz, Journalists and the State of Fear, in which they documented a dramatic rise in attacks, surveillance and executions of media workers under Duarte's premiership. Here's journalist Miguel Angel again. Bueno, pues, pues es que en la administración de Javier Duarte... Well, in the administration of Javier Duarte, there was permission to commit any misdeed. The governor had no control of the state and his secretaries committed abuses wholesale, abuses related to public administration and diversion of resources, abuses also against the press on the part of the spokesperson who worked with him, abuses by his police because it seemed that it was a policy. I must also say that it was orchestrated by the government from the federal government. Then it was a very, very dangerous place to practice journalism especially for censorship, for aggressions. This was the easiest thing to do, to send a journalist to be beaten, to totally condition the government's advertising agreements in order not to do your job, but even to lie in order to keep an income for the company, for the journalistic companies. They could have gone into debt yesterday with, I don't know, 100 million pesos, and the next day there was a front page in different media that Javier Duarte had saved the state. Yes. I think it was like the worst moment that Veracruz has ever had, with highest level of impunity. Anything could be done in Veracruz. Anything illicit could be done in Veracruz. But we also have to say that he left and things did not improve at all. Organized crime had spread its tentacles so far into the state that Reporters Without Borders stated there was widespread corruption within the Veracruz police and judicial systems and that many officials are directly or indirectly linked to the cartels. And then to top it all off, nearly half the threats and attacks against journalists are by police officers. Here's Leopoldo Maldonado from Article 19 again. Now, we do not have to make this artificial separation between organized crime and public authorities. In reality, they act in collusion. They act in confluence, in complicity. And that is why no matter where the violence comes from, the investigations do not advance. The perpetrators are not found, or only the material perpetrators are found in some murders that are effectively part of criminal groups. But these criminal groups murder or disappear a journalist for political reasons and in collusion with political authorities. So evidently, this is where it starts to become more complex and where we must take macro-criminality approach to advance. Let us say, in the right to the truth of the victims and of society about what is happening in the violence against the press, but also to advance in terms of justice to identify and punish all those responsible. And let me tell you another story of a photojournalist called Ruben Espinosa. 
He actually started his career as a photographer for an up-and-coming politician, Javier Duarte. Yeah, that guy. He quickly moved into a career as a freelancer and it was the murder of another prominent journalist in her home in Veracruz. Regina Martinez was a veteran correspondent for the investigative news magazine Proceso. She frequently wrote about organized crime and its links with elected officials in Veracruz. That made Ruben begin covering social movements and protests, but he also joined local groups that defend journalists. And that's when the threats and surveillance began. He eventually fled to the relative or assumed safety of Mexico City in June 2015. Just a few weeks later, the bodies of Ruben and Nadia Vera, a human rights activist and open critic of Duarte, were found alongside three other women in an apartment. They'd been tortured, bound, raped and killed. These four feminicides and the murder of Ruben are known as the Navarte case and have been one of the emblematic cases of the impunity that also prevails in the local prosecutor's offices, of the manipulation that exists from the upper excellence of power to investigation of this nature and of how, even when the possibility of a link between political actors from another state and the criminals who, let's say, pulled the trigger. is raised with reasonable evidence. The authorities are reluctant or unwilling or do not know how to carry out this type of investigation that links the victim journalistic work as an investigative hypothesis. The Narvarte case, as it is known, remains unpunished, and it remains unpunished because the authority, the Attorney General Office in Mexico City, simply doesn't want to move forward and first manipulate the investigation in a cynical and evident way. And I find this really frustrating. It even makes me angry that this and countless other similar cases I've read about while researching this podcast to me, it feels like the investigations start with a preconceived notion of the motive, that essentially the murders had nothing to do with their work. The 31-year-old photojournalist specialized in documenting social movements in Veracruz, many of which are critical of the ruling party and the Gulf state's governor, Javier Duarte. Investigators say they are following protocols for crimes against journalists and crimes against women, as well as looking at robbery as a possible motive. But journalism and human rights activists say that Espinoza's work and the threats that drove him from Veracruz and forced him to seek refuge in Mexico City should be the main line of investigation. Despite the brutality of the murders of Ruben and those found with him, police surmised that three men caught on CCTV had entered the flat and stolen a suitcase full of items. Although what items were stolen, they didn't know but at the same time had managed to torture, bound, rape, and beat the victims before leaving 50 minutes later. It's truly mind-boggling. And this dismissive attitude is the norm. Regina Martinez, burglary. Javier Valdez, car theft. Jose Luis Gamboa Arenas, as we heard at the start, the official line is attempted robbery. So why aren't these cases investigated with the level of importance they deserve? Here's Jan Albert Hudson, the Mexico representative of the Committee to Protect Journalists. I think the Mexican authorities have made a sort of a um, very regrettable tradition out of minimalizing violence against journalists and human rights defenders. They're constantly trying to make sure 
that it does not become a PR problem for a very simple reason is that if you treat a homicide like any other homicide, then it's just part of a statistic that's almost, that's almost too big to grasp. And so it will not be prioritized in public opinion. The problem, of course, is that, is that when a journalist is attacked, it's not just a regular homicide. A journalist is attacked because, because of a fundamental right, uh, which is the right to freedom of expression and the right to access to information for the, for the public. So it is a case that carries some components with it that uh, require a very specific kind of police investigation. And by minimalizing what's happening by saying, well, you know, he was killed because of something personal, or he was killed because he was uh, colluding himself with the criminal gangs, then you basically send a signal to the public that you are unwilling to properly investigate and that the public should be unwilling to look at this as something beyond like the regular uh, stories of the day of murders and, uh, and homicides. And I think that's a very dangerous development because ultimately that's one of the other things that uh, continues to push impunity as the most important factor that incentivizes these killings. And so this takes us to the heart of the issue and that's impunity. And we'll be discussing that in the next episode. That's it for the first episode of Killing the Power of the Pen, Violence Against Journalists in Mexico. I'd like to thank Marcela Tarati, Leopoldo Maldonado, Griselda Triana, Miguel Angel Leon Carmona, Syria Gastelem Felix, and Jan Albert Hudson. Part two of Killing the Power of the Pen will be available in two weeks. For more information about this topic, there will be a reading list provided in the podcast notes. Please could you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast and even share it around. For other podcast videos and research into global organized crime, head over to our website, globalinitiative.net. We're also across social media. Just search for The Global Initiative and you'll find us. This has been Deep Dive from The Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening. I'd just like to add that a day after releasing this episode, two more journalists were killed in Veracruz, Mexico. Yesenia Molinado and Sheila Garcia were both gunned down as they sat in a car. This takes the total to 11 for this year.